This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show. This is our regular Friday time with Max Page, who is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. Max, I want to talk labor law with you. You've been a labor leader across the state and certainly here in the Valley before then for, a, for many, many years. There is a story that has not received a lot of publicity. I do know about it, but I don't think I've seen it many places. And this has to do with the attempt of the workers, the employees in the Massachusetts State House to unionize, which, well, has not succeeded and has not received the support I would have thought it would have received from, well, Democratic leaders, uh, D, capital D, Democratic Party leaders. There, of course, are uh, supporters of organized laborers and unionization efforts, but in the State House, well, not so much, kind of a not-in-my-neighborhood, not-in-my-backyard kind of thing. So can you tell us what this effort has been and what has happened recently, please? Yes, uh, Bill, uh, most of the work, of the, the day-to-day work of the State House is done by the hundreds of chief of staffs, legislative aides, policy directors, secretarial staff, all the work that makes bills get written and moved forward and dealing with constituents, all this happens with these very hardworking, frankly overworked, state house workers staff. And they have decided that they would like a union, which is a, which is a basic uh, human right, says the United Nations, and so that they can gain better benefits, but also have a voice over um, their workplace, which at times can be pretty, uh, pretty brutal and you know especially in these intense times at the end of the sessions so they did what any union would do which is to say let's get together and we'll create a union and then um you can either go in an ideal world in a friendly labor state like massachusetts you simply go to your employer in this case the the, the senate and house um on beacon hill and say well of course you believe in labor so you should um, voluntarily recognize us. That has not happened. And the Senate and the House have thus far refused to um, acknowledge and, and recognize this union. And the Senate in particular last week took a stand saying, I'm sorry, it's too complicated. There's, there's legal issues, there's this and that. Um, and it's, it's rather disturbing. Well, let me ask you this, because I, I, I understand the desire, particularly after you, the ex- exhibition of how much work, like, you know, 36, 48 straight hours without going to sleep of work, you understand why people might want to have a say in their working conditions. Uh, that said, uh, the description of the employees, of the workers, uh, who, who are at the State House, the one that you just gave, does raise the issue for me about how many different actual bosses there are, how many different employers, because every state representative, every state senator has their own staff. How would there be a union of all of these different people who, as as a practical matter, work for, well, hundreds of different people? Well, these are all workers doing very similar jobs, even if in different offices. And that's a very common way of bringing a union together. A union is a union of, of workers of, um, in, a, in a certain workplace or in a similar industry. And so that's what is going on here. Is they, they recognize whether they're Republican, Democrat, whether they're in the speaker's office or a, a Senate, you know, senator's office, the work is very similar and they want a voice in that workplace. That's a very basic idea. And I will say there was an especially disturbing um, kind of response from um, the Senator Brownsberger, who said something a little bit more pointed to what you just said. He said, um, there could be a whole lot of conflict of interest issues here. You can't have people serving multiple masters. That's just not acceptable. And other than being potentially uh, offensive, if it is, depending on how you understand the word master, um, then that is a very old line um, in the anti-union world. Well, if you're going to be loyal to your union, you can't be loyal to the organization. If you 
are fighting, you know, if you belong to that group, then you can't really be fully belong to this group. And that's simply, that's simply false. Uh, and unions have always done the, have worked on behalf of their members within the workplace. The state Senate, as I understand this, the uh, uh, head of the Democratic Party for the state Senate personally came out and said she didn't support the unionization of effort, as I understand it, which uh, uh, Karen Spilko, which as a practical matter, I think, uh, put the kibosh on this. Is that is that what happened? Um, I would. Yeah, I, I don't think the employer gets to decide whether there's a, a union or not. Um, she has clearly put it. We, there was a hope by the, the state house workers um, and that's why they asked allies like the Massachusetts Teachers Association, which has endorsed their campaign um, to have a union to. They were hoping that this could get done in this formal session, which ended on July 31st, or really it ended on the morning of August 1st, early in the morning. Um, so that didn't happen. She put up all kinds of obstacles, but clearly the workers are going to continue and those obstacles just have to be overcome. When you say get done this session, that would was that referring to changes in state law that might have to be made in order for these workers to be able to unionize? Correct. There was there was probably needs to be um, a change in state law. In the past, there have been some workers who have not been included in what's called 150E. That's the kind of the public sector labor law, and um, they've made changes to add in certain um, certain types of workers under that law, and so they could make that change. There were also issues allegedly around. How do we make a contract? There are typically three years in typical union contracts when you have elections for the legislature every two years. That's that's something that could be worked out. I mean, there's any number of solutions to that to that problem. So the point is there may be specific challenges, but that is exactly what the purpose of um, forming a union and negotiating a contract is all about. Let's go back for one to one one point that uh, you just inferentially raised. Uh, having to do with where the jurisdiction lies for certain workers, because private workers are in private industry are governed by federal law, state workers by state law. Maybe you could explain that for to our listeners. It's not self-evident for everyone who's not in this field and doesn't work in this field all the time. Right. I, well, Bill, I think you just explained it. What we call the National Labor Relations Act and National Labor Relations Board, we sort of think of as the overseeing body that oversees um, unions and union elections and the like, but that's all private sector. And so we have, um, there's uh, state labor law specifically for public sector workers. And that includes also, of course, our municipal workers and our public college and university workers. Which is how it works, I, I take it, uh, nationwide, that the National Labor Relations Board, pursuant to the National Labor Relations Act, governs private employers employers and, and private employees, but public employees are governed by state law. Correct. Okay. So uh, one last question on this. What happens next? Are these, some, you know, I, I don't understand how it, in a, in a, in a, uh, in, in a, in a state that is allegedly pro worker, pro union, pro organization, uh, pro association, pro that, uh, right to organize and to associate. How, how how can the Democratic Party not support this? Well, Bill, I'll use an analogy um, of, of universities that have fought graduate student organizing forever and have used the very same arguments. There, how can they those those graduate students who serve as t teaching assistants and do work for the university? How can we have them be have a union when we are mentoring them, when we work closely together, when we work hand in glove on this work of passing legislation? Uh, that's been used so that, in other words, people who believe in unions want them elsewhere, not necessarily in their own workplace. <laughs> and that's what's disturbing. And, you know, at some point, people who have um, legislators, and there are many legislators, uh, not nearly enough, who have signed on, but there will come a time in which legislators who've been saying, look, let's figure this out. I need to wait. I need to figure it out to see if we can make, you know, w when we can do this. are going to have to just, you know, take a take a position on this. And um, I'm hoping that's sooner, not later. 
Max Page, I'd like to turn to another issue that has caught my attention, and that is that the UMass contracts, which have been in place for some time, are, of course, subject, as every public sector union contract is. It says somewhere at the beginning or the end, all of this is subject to appropriation by the legislature, because there are raises. Um, there are cost of living increases and the like. And my understanding is that in this turmoil of the end of the legislative session, this marathon session that went all nighter, uh, that's went on significantly into the next day, and the Massachusetts legislature did accomplish something. It changed the calendar and made August 1st part of July 31st. All of that craziness going on. Somehow the UMass contracts weren't funded. Is that right? That is correct. So, Bill, the, the, the legislature operates at the end of its formal session after two years, and that means it ends July 31st of the second year of the legislative cycle, um, playing Russian roulette. That is, they pile on important things, and when there's controversies, they see this July 1st as a drop dead, and they know that people are going to, they're going to, someone's going to blink, or everyone's going to blink, and they're going to make a compromise on big pieces of legislation, and then they will settle those. Or they won't. Um, this one, this is an economic development bill, became the Christmas tree, which included a whole bunch of things, whether it included tax cuts and bonding to rebuild college buildings. It included also contracts, contracts for the UMass Amherst faculty and librarians, as well as the clerical staff at UMass Boston. It was thrown in there. They were non-controversial. It was like, oh, let's just get this all done in one because we know we're going to get it done on July 31st because that's the deadline. It didn't happen. It all collapsed um, for complicated reasons um, related to an old law around taxes, uh, which I could explain. But the, the bottom line is that the legislature assumed, everyone assumed this thing would pass, and it didn't. And so now, UMass faculty and librarians who, who submitted a final agreed-upon contract that everyone agreed on, the governor, everyone else, on April 5th, are sitting here now months and months later with no clear prospect of when those contracts will be funded. So we're hoping to pull those things out of an otherwise controversial bill. So why can't the legislature simply say, here's this part of this bill, it's its own bill, no one objects, it's been there for months, everyone agrees, the state agrees, the governor agrees, the UMass agrees, the, the unions agrees, everyone is in agreement, it's a kumbaya moment, let's unanimously pass it. Why, why didn't that just happen? Um, Bill, that is a very rational approach, and certainly the MTA has been saying there's so much here that is non-controversial, not just the contracts, there's many other elements of this bill that were in both side, both the House version of this bill and the Senate version. So yes, our view is come right back before vacation, do the people's business, pass the non-controversial things, and then deal with this question around taxes and tax cuts that is a little bit more complicated. Do that later, figure that out in the fall, but the things that need to happen now should happen now, including workers. And I'm, we're talking about the UMass faculty and librarians, we're talking about clerical staff. We're also talking about other aspects of the bill that would help human service workers and in changing their rates of pay, which are you know ridiculously low. So there's a lot of things that could be done and they can do it like that. It does not require a formal vote. They, they gavel in, they gavel so is the legislature still working on this i mean is everyone taken off an informal session you can get a lot done if there is unanimity which there seems to be is the legislature still at work on this well the, the funny thing is about after july 31st the legislature goes into informal session where things as you said can only pass um, if there's unanimity which means they've cut a deal to everyone to no one to protest they have to session it. They have to jump into session every Thursday and Monday, meaning every whatever that is, 72 hours to keep the session alive. So there is at least a few people there and business actually already got done on Thursday, a little small changes and things. So it's totally possible. And we are pushing hard that they do that what they need to do next Monday or next Thursday and get these contracts signed and many other parts of this stalled economic development bill done. Let's leave it at that optimistic place. Max Page, we really appreciate you being with us. Thank you so very much. Good luck next week. Thanks, Bill. 
This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Want to support the kind of local talk you hear on The Bill Newman Show? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And we'll be supporting the local news, valley talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. And add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP. Your message at whmp.com. But what are we drinking in the wine bunker today? Random white wine. Yes. All right. Hello, I'm Random White Guy, and I'm going to be drinking random white wine. Every Friday morning, Monty visits the wine snobs to talk about wine at State Street. The first one here is the uh, Gomez Cruzado from the Haro region of Rioja, and this is a white wine. Now, most people might be familiar with Viora, but this is also blended with 25% Tempranillo Blanco. I always forget that that's even a thing. Don't we all? The first sip almost seems puckering dry, but it really rounds out. A couple more sips into it, it and it is lush and creamy. But it's not so creamy without acid. There's like a, there is yeah. a little bit of acid yeah, in there. When it's too creamy, I get really bored, and yeah. it's like what they call flabby. But with the acid, it braces it, and it makes it really yeah. good. This, this I want like scallops. <laughs> you mean scallops? I don't care. I want them. I care. Scallops. There we go. Thank you. Find your favorite wine and your next favorite wine at State Street. Hi, it's Jessica, owner of Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. As the weather gets warmer, I know many of you are thinking about your summer workout schedule. And if you're like me, it's all about finding work, life, and workout balance, which is why when you sign up at Fitness Together, you'll put a schedule together with your personal trainer that actually works for you, is stress-free, and will help you stay fit, healthy, and balanced. Visit us online today at fitnesstogether.com, Amherst, or Northampton, and sign up for your free consultation. Hi, I'm Kate Kelly, public health nurse with the City of Northampton. The Northampton Health Department is holding vaccination clinics in Northampton and other locations in the region. Outdoor walk-in availability has reopened at the Northampton High School. Dates, locations, and appointments for all clinic sites can be found at the City of Northampton website. Go to www.northamptonma.gov and click on vaccine clinics. The clinics continue to offer Pfizer, pediatric Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, and in special situations, Johnson and Johnson. Clinics will also offer boosters to anyone ages five and up. The COVID vaccine is free for anyone from any community. Please bring your vaccine card and insurance card. If you do not have health insurance, you can still have a vaccine. Public health nurses are available at every clinic for your questions or concerns. Booster shots are one more layer of protection against COVID-19 and they prevent a huge number of people from needing to go to the hospital. We want to protect our most vulnerable or simply unlucky neighbors from getting the virus. We can't afford to let our guard down. Space, a final frontier. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is Salman Hamid's universe, formerly known as Salman Hamid's Ridiculously Large and Largely Ridiculous Universe. It's definitely shorter to then say that it's formally known as that after the new name of it. Thank you. Appreciate that. (laughs) Well, so many insights already on this segment. How are we ever going to get through this morning? I don't know. Salman Hamid, thank you so much for being with us. I, I... uh, Salman Hamid, for listeners who are uh, just joining us for this segment for the first time, Salman Hamid is a professor at Hanford College and an astronomer. So, Salman, I'd like to ask you about your reaction and what we should know and be concerned about with regard to Russia pulling out of the International Space Station, uh, taking effect, uh, taking effect, I think, in about a year. Um, the International Space Station, uh, I learned during this controversy, not so international. It seems to be uh, Russia and the United States. China's not a part of it, but other countries have been, as I understand it. So what I'd like to know is, is Russia leaving a big deal, both in terms of the functionality of the space station and that program, uh, and what other implications does it have that Russia is leaving? Uh, thank you, uh, Bill. And uh, Max Page, before he left, uh, he had uh, talked about sort of like going on the positive stand and talk about James Webb Space Telescope. But we will continue a little bit on the pessimistic uh, strand of humanity. And then we will, get so, to the, we will get to the James Webb Space Telescope because it's so amazing. In the next segment. Yes. yes. And <laughs> so, uh, so I should mention that, uh, I mean, the, 
idea of International Space Station was actually quite uh, ideal because it was the, uh, the thing that space is for cooperation. Originally, when it was uh, conceived, it was supposed to be Freedom Space Station, but then post-Cold uh, War, uh, Russia was asked to join in. And then it really became an international space station. It also includes European Space Agency, Canadian Space Agency, and, and NASA. And, uh, and it was supposed to be a symbol. And so the way it was conceived, again, was that there are two major components. One, which maintains its orbit, because its orbit needs to be continuously being adjusted. That is the responsibility of the Russian Space Agency. And then there is this other component of power that comes from, uh, no pun intended, but the electrical power actually <laughs> comes from the US uh, part. And so in some sense, to maintain the International Space Station requires cooperation, right? So that's how it was done. And uh, China wanted to join in. Uh, it wanted it was wanted to expand into uh, sort of its presence in space. Uh, NASA, it actually asked European Space Agency, Canadian Space Agency, whether it can join in. But every country has to agree on adding an, another partner. And the United States banned China from joining the International Space Station. Uh, this was uh, in the 2000s. And then I think 2011 was the final decision that they made. And that led to, that's a parallel story of China going out and building its own space station, which is smaller than the International Space Station. Nevertheless, it is its own space station, which is going to be finished. Uh, it's different segments are in place. I think there is one more segment that is going to go uh, later this year. So, so stop, that is stop, stop right for, now. In fact, stop there for one second. So what you're saying, as I understand it, is that China is now busy building its own space station? It's completing its own new space station. And China has asked Russia and European space, like he said, it says, we want to cooperate with them. And it has now in return, banned any cooperation with the United States, right? So like, you know, and so we are in that situation. So as, so this is where the story arc goes. As Russia has said that it's no longer going to participate in the International Space Station by the end of 2024, when its contract runs out. Now, International Space Station, it's an old station now. It was expected to go until 2030. Uh, but now it will depend what will happen. Russia has said that it's going to stop uh, its thing. Now, International Space Station is not going to just crash and burn. Uh, it's plausible that Russia can uh, give a sort of like you know, control of it to, uh, uh, like you know, the Americans can give it to some other company or uh, can expertise to something else. So I think it will still be there, nevertheless, symbolically. It's a big deal because the whole point of the International Space Station was cooperation. But in some sense, that idealism of space, which to a certain degree, even during Cold War, in the height of the Cold War, you had the Apollo-Soyuz mission in the 1970s, where there was this famous handshake in space, that yes, in space, we don't follow the kind of politics that is going on, uh, or we can overcome it. That is now becoming a reality that no, our competitions, our politics, and all of that stuff is actually continuing in space, and it may get even worse. Okay, and just to clarify, the Russians now are working with, or presumably will be working with the Chinese on the Chinese space station. The Europeans are open or may be involved in that. The European Space, Sta space Agency is still involved or is not still involved with what we call the International Space Station, which it seemed to me was primarily a United States and Russian uh, endeavor at this point. So clarify that for us before we... No, the European Space Agency, Canadian Space Agency, they are still part of the International Space Station. Russia has said when they pulled out that they are going to work on their own space station, right? But what I was referring to was that China is open to cooperation with Russians and European Space Agency. And the place where it really comes in, uh, and the space stations are actually, uh, in, in some sense, it's a short-term thing. Where a lot of this conversation is taking place is regarding the moon, uh, because uh, 
US uh, and other countries, it actually calls it the Artemis Accord. There are 21 countries now. Biden just got an agreement from Saudi Arabia to join in as well. There are 21 countries that are joining in with the United States for a project on the moon. And uh, they are designing their own laws. In fact, NASA is leading a thing in there of how mining is going to take place, what are going to be the rules up there. And China is planning its own presence on the moon. And for that, it is cooperating with Russia. And it has also invited European Space Agency to be with it. So what is happening in low Earth orbit that is just a prelude. This is just a taste. What is really going to take place in a few years is what's going to happen on the moon. And the only treaty so far that has governed, that everybody has signed, was a treaty signed in 1967, the, out, the United Nations Outer Space Treaty, which people kind of respect, except that it's pretty vague. And the US, to a certain degree, has been responsible for moving away from the Outer Space Treaty because now they have this Artemis Accord, which sets its own rules of engagement, which prioritizes, for example, commercialization as well. So now what people are worried about is that there's going to be, Monty just played Star Trek intro, this notion that we are going to be, space is going to be uh, an impetus for thinking of humanity as unified, thinking of utopia. We are going exactly in the opposite direction. And in fact, we are going, we are seeing more balkanization, no pun intended in terms of sort of like, you know, splits, but of this space law. And it's unclear what kind of system these countries, these nations, these accords that are taking place are going to be following when they are in space. Including what you just said, Salman, which is laws, rules that go that will govern mining, mining for precious metals, I take it, on the moon. Okay. Uh, and asteroids and comets. Uh, the Artemis Accord, which uh, U.S. Uh, has 21 and 20 other countries have joined in, that includes various rights, not just, it is not just about the moon, it is about comets and asteroids, and also about setting up a stage for Mars as well. Uh, this was signed in 2020. So when, this is Trump's last year when he did it, but it hasn't been changed. Biden has actually endorsed that to a certain degree. Uh, but the rights of mining actually were given by President Obama back uh, before when he was in office. So. It's a messy picture. I, I, I'm sorry, I, I'm not giving you uh, optimistic, normally sort of like with space, optimism comes in, but this is going to be messy. We're going to have optimism right after this break when we talk about the James Webb International Space Telescope. Wow. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Vice President Kamala Harris says Massachusetts is a model that other states should follow when it comes to protecting access to abortions and reproductive health. Harris was in the Bay State yesterday to meet with several lawmakers, including Governor Charlie Baker. This moment requires us to see there are extremist so-called leaders who believe that the way forward is to restrict rights. There is so much at stake right now. This was Harris's first visit to Massachusetts as vice president. The Hadley Select Board is issuing a letter of support to the Valley Community Development to create affordable housing. The Valley CDC is interested in converting the Econo Lodge Hotel on Route 9 into a 51-unit affordable housing complex. The board voted to issue the letter, which will be sent to the state's Department of Housing and Community Development's Division of Housing and Low-Income Housing Tax Credit Program. More than $10 million in grants will be awarded to several cities across the Commonwealth from the Massachusetts Gaming Commission. The funds, which were established by the gaming law, offer aid to local communities to help offset costs related to casino construction and operation. Close to $6 million of that money will be awarded to projects in Agawam, Holyoke, Northampton, Longmeadow, Springfield, and West Springfield. 
A hot and humid mix of sun and clouds today. Scattered showers and thunderstorms developing in the afternoon. A high of 90 to 94. Chance for a few scattered evening showers. Otherwise mostly cloudy, mild and muggy. 68 to 74. Sun cloud mix tomorrow. Hot and humid. A high of 86 to 90. Scattered afternoon showers. And the chance for showers on Sunday with a high in the low 90s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis. 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rechivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El gobierno federal presentó cargos de derechos civiles el jueves contra cuatro policías de Louisville por la redada antidrogas que condujo a la muerte de Breonna Taylor, una mujer negra cuyo tiroteo fatal ayudó a impulsar las protestas por la justicia racial que sacudieron a la nación en 2020. Los cargos, la mayoría de los cuales se derivan de la orden judicial de drogas defectuosa utilizada para registrar la casa de Taylor, son un esfuerzo para responsabilizar a las fuerzas del orden público por el asesinato de la trabajadora médica de 26 años. Uno de los oficiales fue absuelto de cargos estatales a principios de este año. Brianna Taylor debería estar viva hoy, dijo el fiscal general Mary Garland al anunciar los cargos que incluyen conspiración ilícita, uso de la fuerza y obstrucción de la justicia. Los cargos nombraron a los exoficiales Joshua James y Brett Hankison, junto con los oficiales actuales Kelly Goodlett y el sargento Kyle Meany. La policía de Louisville dijo que busca despedir a Goodlett y Meany. Hankison fue el único oficial acusado el jueves que estuvo en la escena la noche del asesinato. Hankison, James James y Mini tuvieron comparecencias iniciales el jueves en un tribunal federal. Los tres hombres enfrentan una sentencia máxima de cadena perpetua por los cargos de derechos civiles. Por su parte, activistas locales y miembros de la familia de Taylor celebraron los cargos y agradecieron a los funcionarios federales. En otras informaciones, el gobierno federal declaró una emergencia de salud pública el jueves para reforzar la respuesta al brote de viruela del mono que ha infectado a más de 6,600 estadounidenses. El anuncio liberará dinero y otros recursos para combatir el virus que puede causar fiebre, dolores corporales, escalofríos, fatiga y bultos parecidos a granos en muchas partes del cuerpo. Yo soy Johan Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Hampshire College professor and astronomer Salman Hamid. During the break, we were talking about what's going to be our topic next time we meet, which is the colonization of the moon the fight and the space fight for water and on the moon, who's going to get it and what it can be used for, colonization and militarization of the moon. But we're, it sounds a little bit competitive and a little bit negative, and we want to have something positive today, something, anything. And we have that from the James Webb uh, Space Telescope. So what's happening out there a million miles away? What are we seeing? What are we learning? And tell us more about those what it, those spectacular images are telling us. Right, so James Webb Space Telescope continues to provide stunning images. And um, and it's like every new image comes in and you go like, whoa. And and, and it's, it's one of those things that you just, I mean, it's going to take a while to really absorb the kind of changes it's going to bring into astronomy. And we talked about its early first images, but uh, I will just want to talk a little bit about uh, today's, uh, or it, it was in New York Times, uh, I think yesterday, or day before yesterday, a cartwheel galaxy. This is a, a spectacular object. Uh, and just as the name suggests, it looks like, literally it looks like a cartwheel because there is a ring of stars around it. Hubble Space Telescope actually took a beautiful picture of that. Uh, and what we think, has happened in this galaxy is that this galaxy is the size of the Milky Way galaxy containing about a few hundred billion stars. And we think that a small galaxy went through it, but the orientation was such that it went through right through the middle. And just like as you drop a pebble in a pond and that produces ripples in the same way this stuff happened in this galaxy where these ripples that disturb gas and dust, they've produced stars in a form of a circle around. And uh, so it's a, it's a beautiful object. Please go and check out this image, both from Hubble Space Telescope 
which operates in the visible, but now with James Webb. And what James Webb does is that it looks in the infrared. So our eyes cannot see, but it can tell you where dust is. So normally dust obscures visible light. So where there is dust, you cannot see stuff. James Webb Space Telescope looks at where the dust is being heated up and warmed up. So in some sense, it can give you, uh, I mean, I, I would like to think, and I don't want to confuse people, but uh, I would like to think it's kind of like an X-ray, even though X-ray itself is an actual light. But what I mean to say is that it can see through dust or see through obscuration to give you what's underneath. So what it is showing in this picture of Cartwheel Galaxy, which of course on the radio you cannot see, but you can uh, see it on the screen uh, at some point, is uh, places where new stars have heated up the dust. So let me ask you this. How, uh, all, all these numbers just boggle my mind and I never can really grasp it for more than a nanosecond, but how long ago did this galaxy go through the galaxy that created the cartwheel galaxy? What are we talking about in terms of ah, that's, light years? That's really cool. So, right. So uh, we can estimate, uh, both based on uh, models, that this something went through 300 million years ago. Right. So we can actually calculate that. that. We can figure out sort of like now how fast this ring is moving and so on and so forth. And there are two small galaxies in the image. When you see the picture, you will see two small galaxies nearby. The problem was they are relatively too close. And so there was this puzzle. It looks like something happened way back, but they are, you are seeing two small galaxies too close to it. However, astronomers found out a third culprit about 300 million light years or a little bit further away uh, from that. And there is, if you look in the hydrogen gas, just in the hydrogen gas, it actually connects a tail. You don't see that in stars. You just have this gas that is connecting Cartwheel Galaxy to this third galaxy, which is a little bit farther away. It's like smoking gun. It's like a thief running away and it's, well, I was going to say it's trouser, but it's shirt has been tucked in and you can actually see this shirt in this hydrogen gas. And so, now we know what collided with this galaxy 300 million years ago. So that actually is, uh, is really cool. So let me ask you, we just have a minute left, Salman, but I, the promise of the uh, James Webb Space Telescope was that it was going to show us as close as possible, going back 13 billion years, what happened, well, as close as we can get to what happened near the Big Bang. Are we closer to seeing that, to seeing the origins of the universe? And I know this is a big question for a minute, but are we closer? Okay, so very quick question, uh, very quick answer. The key thing was that it would be able to detect some of the very first galaxies that formed after the Big Bang. And right from the, there are claims right now, even just from the first image that was released, that we may be pushing the limit and already some of the records for the farthest galaxy from us has already been broken. But remember, it has just started taking these images. It will take some time to carefully analyze them and to be sure that those galaxies are really farthest away. But uh, are we sure we are going to find those first galaxies or are close to the farthest galaxies? Yes. I think that looks uh, pretty evident even from the first images that were released, which were very quick ones. Now it's time to dig deep. Some of the best images from the Hubble Space Telescope came out several years after it had been in space. The same thing will be true for James Webb Space Telescope as well. So buckle up. There will be some fantastic results. We leave it there. Salman Hamid, thank you so very much. This is Bill Newman, WHMT. Hey, 
everyone, Gordon Oliver here. I am privileged, along with my co-pilot, Tina Marie, to gather and share a community of people, organizations, and experts who are making a difference in improving and positively impacting the financial lives of others. Financial peace of mind is a marathon, not a sprint, so we're cutting through the clutter to help you attain or continue to attain financial freedom. When you have that little blue check mark on Twitter, you're authentic, and no one is more authentic than crypto expert Dan Held of Kraken. Listen in on Saturday at 9.30 a.m. right here on WHMP. Do you know what's going on in business in Western Mass? You do if you read Business West. Find out which companies are growing, which companies are innovating. Learn about people on the move, people taking the lead. Every issue of Business West is packed with business news, including incorporations, building permits, real estate transactions, and bankruptcies. Pick up a copy or read Business West online. The vital business news is in Business West, the business journal of Western Mass. This week's Shop Tuesday is Saturday Passes to the Unifier Festival. The Northeast's premier High Vibe Festival is back. A four-day music, dance, healing, and expressive arts festival held in Camp Timber Trails in Tolland, Mass. Featuring live music, workshops, yoga, and an art show, it's a place for ceremony, permaculture, and circus arts with organic food and a 16-acre lake. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Saturday Passes to the Unifier Festival. Available this Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Moses and Kitch want out of their Chicago neighborhood and off the corner to which they are tethered. They dream of things, clean socks, and the return of a dead brother. Things that await in the promised land, if only they can pass over. The Chester Theatre Company presents Pass Over, Antoinette Nwandu's surreal and morbidly funny existential drama. The first play performed when Broadway reopened last year. Pass Over, final weekend, Wednesday through Sunday. Get tickets now at chestertheatre.org. For some kids, home isn't a safe place. And in these times, access to trusted adults like teachers and counselors is limited. I'm Kara McElhone, Executive Director of the Children's Advocacy Center of Hampshire County. Our mission is to prevent and end child abuse in our community by providing safety, healing, and justice. The Children's Advocacy Center is open in providing resources to children and caregivers throughout Hampshire County. Please visit us online at cachampshire.org or call 413-570-598. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Modest, very minimal increase in the police budget, largely uh, due to just regular contractual um, obligations. Holyoke is nothing like Northampton and Greenfield. The quality of life uh, issues or demographics, very, very different. So I can never compare our police departments. The challenges we have going on in our city are very, very different. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is Artbeat with Donabel Cassis. Donabel, the microphone is yours. Thank you, Bill. Good morning. This weekend, the ninth annual Pocomtuck Homelands Festival will celebrate Native American art, music, and cultures at Unity Park in Turner's Falls. Event coordinator Diane Dix will share what this festival will bring. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Now, Diane, you are a member of the Nolambika Project, which presents this festival. Please tell us a little bit about your organization. All right. We, um, we're an educational group primarily, and we support events. We create events where we can bring indigenous people to share with the public their own stories in their own words. There's a lot of history that needs to be corrected. Mm. Well, this is the ninth festival that you've put together and the offerings are so rich and feature almost twice as many Native American tribes as last year's gathering, mm -hmm. at least 30, is that right? Uh, yes. So as they come together, um, it seems like this festival is a great way to sort of bring all these traditions together, keep them alive, and um, you know, you also have vendors available. So as we are currently speaking, uh, 
your festival is actually being ushered in by a special event happening right now. Can you tell us about that? Sure. In 2019, a machine, a traditional dugout canoe, was started at the festival. It burned for the entire weekend at the parking lot at Turner's Falls at the abutment. Mm. And it was completed in 2020. We wanted to have a launch similar to today with a lot of people, but because of COVID, we were not able to. But um, there are probably 40, maybe more kayaks and canoes out on the river right now with the machine. But the most exciting addition is that last year, the Nipmuc group that is at Okateo Cultural Center in Ashfield mm -hmm. also built a canoe. Oh, and wow. their canoe is joining this. So for the first time on the Connecticut River, there will be a Nipmuc canoe and a, an Aquina canoe oh. because the crew who built the canoe for us at the festival were Aquina Wampanoag, Narragansett and Abenaki. Oh my gosh, it must be such a powerful event to witness. And it's it's taking place for most of this morning into until later, until two o'clock today. Are, are people still able to go? Well, they can't participate. And I have no idea where on the river they are, but at about 1.30, somewhere between 1.30 and two o'clock, they are going to be circling around and be near the abutment. So if anyone is interested in standing there and watching them go by, they'll be there then. Oh my gosh. And luckily it's still kind of cool out. So now would be a really great time to watch it. Um, Bill, you had a question? I, I do. Are the canoes different uh, based on which uh, uh, nation they come from or are they basically similar? They're very similar. I haven't seen them side by side. The um, Aquinum machine will be on display at the festival. Ah, nice. And so also, also a, a person fr from the Nipmuc tribe, uh, her name is Cheryl Stetler, is the program director for the machine project. And they found a couple of machines sunken in a lake in the Worcester area. Mm. And they've done a study of that. So. The machine will be there and she will be there with a lot of information about the history of machines, which is the, the log that we used was from Belchertown, mm. pine log, 18 feet long. Wow. And for, wow. The, for those who've never seen a machine or seen one being created, it doesn't look like what our, you know, our minds would go to a sporting goods store and buy a canoe. And the whole idea where you were talking about burning the machine, explain a little bit more about that for folks who might not be familiar with how the process is done. Okay, well, they start with a small fire on the top. It's really fascinating to watch. And eventually the fire builds and the fire does most of the work. Hmm. They, they use um, ads to scrape. It, the the uh, process is called burning and scraping. Mm -hmm. And um, takes a lot of firewood. <laughs> I can I can only imagine. Eight, are they all roughly eighteen feet long, or, or they vary? Well, there are others that were much much longer. Wow. We had trouble finding a tree that was big enough. Oh. You know, at this at this particular time, but it, it, there were uh, some that were much longer, and it takes almost a week of constant burning and scraping. Hmm. before it's hollowed out. Wow. And how many people can it hold? I think four. Around four. Wow. I've, I've never seen more than four in our machine, except when they brought uh, their children, their child. So there was a fifth. He was small. Hmm. Now, Diane, this, is, this uh, festival happens at Uni Unity Park. Can you tell us about the site and how this festival got started? Sure. Um, we had just reformed from being the Friends of Wissachs and the Wag to being the Nolan Beacon Project, and nobody knew who we were. And at the time, every first weekend in August, Turner's Falls had a block party. So 
So we decided we were going to set up a table and just hand out some information about that. And that led to the town's river culture calling us the following January and inviting us to put on an event at Unity Park. And it's built every year. Mm. This year, um, we have at least 40 vendors. Wow. Um, we have just amazing guests. Mm -hmm. We never would have been able to do that nine years ago. This, this is growing organically. And it, it grew, we think, from a ceremony that took place in Unity Park on May 19th, 2004, when the select board in Turner's Falls contacted the Friends of Wissatinawag, we were all members of Friends of Wissatinawag at that time, and said that they wanted to create some kind of healing after the massacre at the Great Falls. And a ceremony took place there. So we feel like this festival is a continuation of that feeling of healing and unity and reunion. It's it's really wonderful. I, I mean, everybody can come. <laughs> I mean, yes. So please tell us how we can get there, what times it happens, and some of the things we can look forward to. Okay. Well, each day it starts at ten in the morning. It will last until seven on Saturday and five on Sunday. We have several elders coming who are very highly regarded. And I, this is a, a unique time for people to be able to have conversations with them as well as listen to their, their words. Tom Porter is um, the spiritual leader for the Mohawk. Doug Harris is a consultant on ceremonial stone landscapes. And we have um, wonderful performers. We have a um, Anishinaabe rock and roll singer named Keith Sokola, who wrote a song called Indian Cars, Cars, C-A-R-Z. Hawk Henrys, who's a much-loved flute player, and the Kingfisher Singers, and drums. We have fantastic drums, including a Mo from a Mohegan tribe. So uh, there's a lot for everybody. I believe you muted yourself, Donabelle. <laughs> Such a huge festival and so exciting. If you just joined us, I'm Diane Dix from the Nolambika Project, and they are hosting the Hokumtuck Homelands Festival this weekend, August 6th and 7th at Unity Park in Turner's Falls. Thank you so much, Diane, for joining us today, and good luck with your festival this weekend. Thank you. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. and experiences play an important role in our financial decision-making. Every Saturday morning, hear real-life stories and positive solutions to issues we all face when it comes to our relationship with money. Financial Fitness with the Money Doctor, Francis Rayum, Saturday mornings at 8.30 on 101.5, 1400, and 1240, WHMP. WHMP is looking for organizations that regularly distribute information about employment opportunities to job applicants or have job applicants to refer. If your organization would like to receive notification of job vacancies at our station, please notify us at Careers, WHMP Radio, 15 Hampton Avenue, Northampton, Massachusetts, 01060, phone number 413-586-7400, or email jobs at whmp.com. Saga Communications is an equal opportunity The only live and local and talk in the Valley and for the Valley, WHMP Northampton, WHMQ Greenfield, a Northampton radio group station. It's 10 o'clock.